Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 35 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an update about anti-money laundering compliance from recent anti-money laundering enforcement actions. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Today, we are going to review AML compliance lessons learned from recent AML enforcement actions. Before we get started, I wanted to inform you that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, offers a variety of anti-money laundering compliance program services. We help both financial institutions and non-financial institutions with AML uh, compliance. For financial institutions, we offer a wide range of services, including implementation of FinCEN's new customer due diligence rules, which are effective May 11, 2018, design of appropriate KYC, CDD, EDD, and related policies and procedures, review and design of policies and practices governing correspondent banking relationships, overall risk assessments, and, of course, AML compliance program evaluations. We are committed to providing you with cost-effective and practical solutions in these areas. Please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com if interested in discussing our specific services in this important area. So now let's go back to AML compliance issues in the, in the part of 2018. Well, in the early part, the Justice Department uh, brought two significant AML criminal enforcement actions. And these two cases, coupled with the new beneficial ownership regulations, which are effective May 11th, 2018, are starting to raise what I think is a new paradigm in AML compliance and enforcement issues. Let's go through the two significant cases, and then we're going to talk about an SEC case that occurred as well. U.S. Bank Corp., USB, entered into a two-year deferred prosecution agreement for failing to maintain an adequate anti-money laundering program and failing to file a suspicious activity reports uh, related to a number of uh, transactions. USB agreed to pay $458 million in forfeiture, a $75 million penalty to the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and a $70 million payment to to FinCEN. Rabobank's subsidiary, this is the second action, which is uh, Rabobank is a Dutch-based global banking uh, company, but Rabobank's subsidiary in a separate action pled guilty to a conspiracy to violate money laundering laws and obstruction of a regulatory investigation of its activities in California. Rabobank agreed to pay $368 million in forfeited funds, and its settlement follows a deferred prosecution agreement with George Martin, an individual and Rabobank manager in Southern California, who agreed to cooperate with the ongoing criminal investigation. So let's start first with the USB case. USB's AML program suffered from serious resource deficiencies and understaffing. The factual statement in that case is, everybody should read it, outlines significant problems in the operation of USB's compliance program, which should cause other financial institutions, and I urge you to do this, to review their own operations to ensure that you avoid the same pitfalls that USB uh, fell under. 
For example, USB failed to operate its program tailored to the AML risks and mistakenly relied on pre-established limits on the number of suspicious or, uh, transactions subject to AML review. Internal documents cited in the factual statement included candid admissions by legal and compliance officers that they knew that their AML program was ineffective. Specifically, USB personnel place strict limits on the number of transactions subject to scrutiny, notwithstanding the fact that they repeatedly learned that a significant percentage of transactions below the thresholds warranted further review for AML risks. Rather than assigning additional resources and increasing resources to its AML program, USB restricted below-threshold testing. During OCC examinations, USB either misled or ignored OCC observations and warnings on its AML program. As described by USB officials, USB was using smoke and mirrors to pull the wool over the eyes of the OCC. Eventually, when USB implemented a new AML compliance program, USB generated 24,179 alerts and filed 2,121 SARS suspicious activity reports for a a six-month period. USB also failed to monitor high-risk Western Union transactions. They approved non-customer Western Union transactions despite the fact that the transaction could not be monitored. Even when red flags were raised concerning these transactions, USB failed to investigate the transaction. The second count of the criminal information filed against the USB charged USB with failure to file SARS in connection with a specific high-value customer by the name of Scott Tucker, who, despite Tucker's fraud and money laundering activities relating to an illegal payday lending scheme using sham bank accounts opened under the name of Native American tribes, USB failed to act. Tucker was eventually convicted for his payday lending scheme and laundering the proceeds through USB bank accounts. Tucker extended 5 million loans to customers while generating more than $2 billion in revenues and hundreds of millions of dollars in profits. USB employees who were responsible for managing Tucker's accounts ignored numerous, if not just infinite, numbers of red flags that Tucker was using the Native American accounts to conceal his ownership of the accounts. For example, Tucker used millions of dollars from these accounts for a vacation home in Aspen and to operate his professional Ferrari racing team. Eventually, news organizations uncovered Tucker's illegal scheme, regulators began to investigate Tucker, and USB closed Tucker's accounts but failed to file a SAR. USB did not close Tucker's non-tribal accounts and open new ones, allowing over $175 million in illegal proceeds to flow through these accounts. Next, let's turn to the uh, Rabobank case. In a brazen conspiracy committed by Rabobank and top executives of its California operations, Rabobank laundered hundreds of millions of dollars in untraceable cash from Mexico through its rural bank branches in Imperial County in Southern California. Rabobank then transferred the money via wire transfers, checks, and cash transactions without notifying federal regulators of the suspicious nature of the transactions. 
in specific Rabobank executives conspired to obstruct and mislead the Office of the Comptroller of Currency during a 2012 examination by hiding deficiencies in its AML program and specifically withholding a consultant's assessment of its AML program. Now, Rabobank had a long history of deficient AML compliance. The OCC had imposed deficiency findings and consent orders regarding Rabobank's AML programming program. Notwithstanding these failures, Rabobank fa- made no attempt to improve its AML program, and the, but the OCC eventually closed the enforcement action inexplicably in 2012. Rabobank continued to engage in laundering activities after 2012, and the factual statement, again, which is worth reading, contains numerous examples of efforts that Rabobank took to continue its laundering activities. Rabobank had a monitoring and investigation unit to monitor and manage thousands of monthly high-risk alerts, but they only allocated a total of three people to the unit to review and investigate approximately 2,300 alerts, and two people were tasked with conducting more than 100 investigations per month, including approximately 75 customers per month for whom SAR determinations had to be made. In June 2010, the Mexican government announced money laundering restrictions on cash transactions involving U.S. dollars at Mexican banks. In reaction to this announcement, Rabobank observed large increases in cash deposits at its Southern California branches. Rabobank's branch, located two blocks from the Mexican border, was the highest performing branch in California. Yet, Rabobank continued to market its services to market to Mexican nationals with cash-intensive businesses. To avoid investigation of these suspicious accounts, Rabobank developed a process to add customers to a verified list, notwithstanding the presence of numerous red flags and suspicious indications of money laundering. In one case, a customer at a specific branch engaged in $100 million of cash deposits and related transactions before Rabobank closed the account. In another case, a customer made withdrawals in increments of $9,500, totaling $1 million over a year before Rebel Bank closed the account. In November 2012, the OCC began an examination of Rebel Bank's activities. The next month, Rebel Bank hired a, a consultant to review its AML compliance program. At the same time, an executive of the company raised serious concerns with the executive management team, several of whom were well aware of the laundering activities and actively promoting the scheme. The consultant's report identified numerous deficiencies in Rebel Bank's compliance program and recommended a number of actions to enhance and remediate its program. The consultant shared the report with individual members of the executive management team. The executive who previously told the management team about deficiencies in Rabobank's program provided similar information to the OCC examiners. In February 2013, the OCC sent a letter to Rabobank concerning its AML program and requested copies and full copies of any reports or recommendations from the consultant. Several executives then conspired among themselves to withhold the bulk of the report except for a summary and then provided false response to the OC, uh, responses to the OCC concerning its overall prob- program and the overall report. 
At the same time, in response to specific warnings about deficiencies in Rebel Bank's Southern California bank operations, the executives fired the reporting executive uh, who had brought the issue to the executive management team. It's not known whether or not there are more, uh, there's an active investigation or plans to indict several of the individuals in each of these cases, but there certainly is plenty of evidence to do so, although there may be questions as to the statute of limitations. Nonetheless, these two cases are examples of when the Justice Department will bring criminal cases and are flagrant Uh, situations where violations after violations occur, notwithstanding regulatory intervention. So let's turn to a third case, which is a SEC case, which is uh, Aegis Capital Corporation. And this was a civil enforcement action, obviously, with the SEC, where the SEC is starting to ramp up its own AML enforcement activities, as well as the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA, uh, focusing more and more on uh, investment banks uh, and broker-dealers uh, and brokerage firms' uh, commitment to, um, to AML compliance. The SEC settlement with Aegis Corporation uh, focused on Aegis's failure to file SARS for transactions that raised red flags, and the transactions were related to market manipulation of low-priced securities, which were conducted through foreign financial institutions. Aegis agreed to pay a $750,000 penalty and retain a compliance expert, and Aegis further settled in a related action with FINRA for an additional $550,000 penalty, resulting in a total monetary penalty of $1.3 million against the institution. The SEC also settled two related enforcement actions against Aegis's former compliance officer for $20,000 and the CEO for $40,000. In a separate action, the SEC brought an enforcement uh, case before an administrative law judge against the current AML compliance officer, and that case has not yet settled. So now let's turn to compliance lessons learned from these cases. And given the enforcement landscape and the increased focus on criminal and civil regulatory AML and uh, compliance, here are some important lessons learned. One, financial institutions have to respond carefully and accurately uh, with regulatory requirements, inspection deficiencies, or other criticisms or matters that are raised, whether communicated informally during the examination or in an exit meeting or formally through written examination findings or matters requiring attention. Every matter should be evaluated, reviewed, and elevated to senior management and the board of directors. Two, Financial institutions have to implement a rigorous and documented remedial plan to verify that changes have been completed and the timing for such changes has occurred according to a schedule. A verification and documentation procedure has to be established and followed. Three, banks have to make sure they do not obstruct, evade, or ignore any regulatory reviews, audits, criticisms, suggestions, In recent cases, the government faulted banks for concealing information from regulators even after regulators specifically requested the information. To mitigate these risks, banks and financial institutions have to establish a communications protocol to ensure that all incoming criticisms, suggestions, 
requested changes are communicated, appropriately handled by uh, officials, and then documented in terms of the response that is given to the regulators to ensure that there's accurate communication. Four, financial institutions have to maintain adequate staffing and technology to carry out their AML compliance programs. Recent government actions have faulted financial institutions for having insufficient staffing and technology to adequately review high-risk transactions, and it's critical that bank management periodically assess the adequacy of its AML resources, its technologies, to assure that they are commensurate with the AML risk posed to the institution. Five, with respect to staffing, maintaining the proper number of staff is, of course, important, but it is not just about headcount. Examiners are increasingly citing inadequate experience and training for BSA officers and their staff and have even faulted banks for paying AML staff below market wages. Six, with respect to technology, financial institutions have been criticized in recent actions for failing to keep monitoring systems up to date increasing the risk of missing suspicious transactions or activities. Financial institutions have been criticized, for example, for failing to have their screening software independently validated, notwithstanding regulatory guidance. Seven, financial institutions have to develop and maintain an effective transaction monitoring system commensurate with the risk profile of the bank. Regulators consistently reprimand banks for either improperly tuned uh, tuning their systems to limit the number of flags or not having the bandwidth in the financial intelligence unit to resolve the number of alerts. In some cases, the government has has alleged that financial institutions manipulate their transaction monitoring systems to limit the number of suspicious activity alerts. Other actions have alleged that financial institutions were instructing staff to clear high-risk transactions at an unreasonably high rate. Regulators are likely to view such changes uh, as shortcuts and possibly evidence of intent to circumvent or avoid AML uh, regulations. Transaction monitoring and the overall AML program should be tailored to the specific risk profile of the bank, not staffing resources. To the extent an institution cannot provide sufficient staffing and compliance resources to address the institution's risk profile, the institution has to do one of two things, either dedicate more and allocate more resources or take steps to reduce its risks. Eight. Financial institution management and the board of directors must ensure that compliance staff closely monitor suspicious accounts and close them when warranted and file SARS when required, irrespective of the customer's size or value to the financial institution. In matters uh, involving important or wealthy customers or customers strongly suspected to be engaged in illicit activity, a failure to close accounts or file a SARS in spite of obvious red flags increases the risk of being perceived by regulators as prioritizing profit over compliance. Nine, and the last one, independent AML assessments and evaluations are critical. Surprisingly, Rabobank had an independent AML assessment conducted during the period of misconduct. The report found a number of deficiencies in the AML compliance program. Companies have to be aware of an assessment, share the results, and develop a remediation plan that is developed and approved 
ultimately by senior management and the board. The program and the remediation program has to be subject to oversight, monitoring, and continuing review. Financial institutions have to devote more time and attention to an annual assessment process and the implementation of continuing remediation based on such an assessment. Well, that's it for now. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.folkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.